morning, everyone. Welcome to Biz and Tax Matters, formerly Tax Talk with Mike and Dennis. I'm your host, Michael Davis. I'm a certified public accountant. My co-host is Dennis Markowitz. Good morning, and I am an enrolled agent. We both operate from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We changed the name in order to expand the content of our show to include business issues in addition to tax. Today's special guests are Michael Liskowski from Santander Bank in Doylestown and Warminster. Good morning, everyone. And Kenneth Morgan with Urban Pool and Heath LLC in Trevos. Good morning. Our mission is to inform our listeners every other week as to the various aspects of running a business, the tax code, and answer any questions you may have uh, with any tax questions or business questions. Please use our call-in number, 609-460-4673, with any questions. And we will monitor all your comments uh, and provide any feedback. So that if you know if you're listening to today's show live, today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2017. We, will, we also have an email address, which is bizintaxmatters at mjdaviscpa.com. And the show will be available in podcast at panjradio.com and will be replayed at 11 o'clock every, other, every day for the next week. So if you're not listening to our live Tuesday show, send an email with your questions and we'll answer it on our next show. Again, the email address again is bizandtaxmatters at mjdaviscpa.com. Please note tax talk in the subject. And our call-in line is... 609-460-4673. So over the last couple of weeks, Dennis, there's been a bunch of, as usual, tax changes. Always. Always. Um, in this particular case, the husband and wife uh, separated and filed tax returns. The, the taxpayer, the wife, used head of household status to file. The IRS refunds from the returns were applied against the joint liability of the taxpayer from the prior year. Uh, With the help of a legal clinic, the taxpayer requested a refund submitting the proper forms, and the IRS denied the request, explaining that uh, she may have intended to file the request uh, properly, but should have used Form 8857 instead of 8379. Years later, the taxpayer submitted the 8857, and then the IRS argued that it was untimely. And the tax court agreed, holding that the 8379 didn't qualify as an informal claim. And that was reversed by the Ninth Circuit, concluding that the taxpayer's claim was timely, that the 8379 gave sufficient notice to the IRS that she was seeking innocent spouse relief. Disregarded entity was a pass-through partner under TEFRA, Now, a father and son formed an LOC that was treated as a partnership for tax purposes. They each held their respective interests in the LOC through a disregarded entities. For the year at issue, the LOC reported a loss attributable to its interest in the Common Trust Fund. The IRS disallowed the loss and imposed penalties. The taxpayer argued that the IRS's notice was invalid because the LOC met the small partnership exception to the TEFRA audit procedures. The tax court and the Ninth Circuit disagreed, holding that a disregarded entity constitutes a pass-through partner under TEFRA, which prevents reliance on a small partnership exception. In addition, the courts held that an entity's disregarded status does not prevent it from being designated as the LOC's tax matters partner. Okay. Um, yeah, you have to be careful when you have multiple entities, especially with the, with the LLCs, because the IRS does not recognize LLCs. So, well, that's a, that's a state entity. It's a, so correct. You, what, you, what the IRS expects you to do is make an election on how to be taxed. You could be taxed as a partnership. You could be taxed as a S-corporation or a C-corporation. But as far as an LO, recognizing an LOC... They don't. They don't. Um, here's a case where a taxpayer had a valuation misstatement penalty to the IRS because they participated in tax shelter. Uh, he provided a reasonable cause defense, and a jury, um, uh, the jury upheld that 
uh, and said that uh, he was entitled to a refund of penalty and interest. He went and got a settlement from his tax advisors uh, filing a lawsuit, and he got that money back. They wanted a refund from the IRS <laughs> of the same interest and penalty. Um, and the, uh, the court allowed it. Uh, because he was entitled, because the penalties were paid to the IRS, and what he got from the, he, he basically double dipped, and they allowed it. Now, is any part of that taxable to the taxpayer? The recovery, if he did, if it was deductible, if he got a deduction for any of that, which penalties are not deductible, the right. interest might have been if it was a business issue. The interest may have been, if he got the interest back, that would be taxable, yes. But he, the taxpayer did get the interest back from the IRS. What about from the tax advisors? Uh, that depends on how that, that court settlement was set up and what it says it was. Okay. You, have to read the, you have to read the papers that came from the attorneys, which is always fun. Yeah, and the reason I bring that up is because everything is so convoluted today, you can't give an answer. There's no such thing as a uh, black and white. Everything is gray. S-Corporation and ESOP participants were related under the Internal Revenue Code Section 267B. During the years at issue, an S-Corporation was partially owned by an employee stock option plan. That is an ESOP. Once again, it's an employee stock option plan. The corporation accrued payroll expenses for employees who participated in the ESOP. However, the portion of these expenses remained unpaid at the end of the year. Despite this, the corporation claimed the deductions for these expenses, which flowed through to the shareholders. Upon audit, the IRS disallowed the deductions, arguing that the S-Corporation and the ESOP participants were related persons under the Internal Revenue Code Section 267B. The court agreed, holding that the ESOP participants were constructive owners of the S-Corporation stock, and as such, like an S-Corporation, was required to defer its compensation deductions to the year in which such pay was received by the ESOP participants. Uh, tax court clarified whistleblower ward rules. In this particular case, the whistleblower turned somebody in, uh, and the what the what he turned them in for was amounts in tax of two million dollars. But when the IRS went and audited them, they got twenty million dollars. So they paid the whistleblower based on the two million because that was specifically what he called about. He said, well, you found 20. I should get it on the whole thing. And he took that to court. And the tax court sided with the whistleblower and awarded him the 10% of the full amount. Was the, it 10%, correct? Yes. The IRS does offer these whistleblowers a finder's fee. And in some cases, I have found that when the taxpayer or whistleblower asks for it, the IRS will respond with, well, we have to audit you first. So a lot of times they'll say, just forget it. Now, transfer to an FLP was includable in an estate. An FLP is a family limited partnership. One week before the taxpayer's mother's death, the the taxpayer, acting on his mother's behalf, transferred $10 million to a newly formed family limited partnership for a 99% interest. That same day, he transferred his mother's interest to a charitable lead annuity trust, with a charity entitled to an annuity until her death and the remainder to her sons. After her death, the IRS assessed nearly $5.1 in estate tax and $3 million in gift tax, saying the estate was undervalued by $10 million for the transfer of the FLP and $3 million for the taxable gift to the charitable lead annuity trust. Because it occurred within three years of the transfer of the death of the mother, the tax court agreed with the estate tax assessment, concluding that because of the partnership agreement gave the taxpayer's mother and her sons the right to dissolve the entity, 
the FLP property was includable in her estate under the retained employment rule of the Internal Revenue Code Section 2036A2. Furthermore, the taxpayer's power of attorney for his mother didn't authorize him to make gifts in excess of the annual federal gift tax exclusion. So the gift to the CLAT was void. I guess the moral of that is anything you do right before death doesn't count because it's in contemplation of death. Yes. And there's also look back since with the estate, it's a three-year look back, I believe. Three-year look back. And um, uh, you just... You just have to be careful when you do those things. I mean, if you if you do it, you don't get looked at, you'll get away with it. But if you get looked at, they're going to bounce it just like they did with this case. Well, not when you're dealing with a $6 million estate. Right. Because that's above the criteria of five and a quarter million dollars. And, and so. requires a filing of the return. Yes. And, and they look at every estate return that's filed. Yes. And especially the valuations. Yes. That's correct. So, uh, anything you're doing, I just is the moral of that story is plan in advance. Have the proper representation. Correct. In our next case, uh, the taxpayer received a bonus while he was still married to his spouse. After filing for the divorce, he signed an agreement to pay half of the bonus, net of withholding, over to his now ex-wife and deducted the amount as alimony on its federal tax return. Under examination by the IRS, they disallowed the deduction, claiming it wasn't made in in pursuant to a divorce or separation agreement. The taxpayer said it's a separation agreement. The court disagreed, stating that the bonus agreement merely provided for a division of community property and did not support and not support Further, the bonus predated a a separate support order and was not determined in in accordance with the order's parameters. Therefore, the payment did not constitute alimony. Well, typically typically when you have a retirement fund and the husband and wife divorce... Well, this wasn't a retirement fund. This was a bonus that he got. Okay. And And I've had... I've had client, I, I actually have a client in this situation whose alimony just ran out last year. Um, she was married to an executive, and he got a bonus every year. And the alimony agreement specifically said that for so many years, she got half of his bonus. But that was after the divorce, okay, so, or after the separation. So that was deductible by him and includable by my client as income. In this particular case, this is... The guy decided to, to try to reclassify money that he received prior to getting separated. So he was trying to play a game and trying to get a deduction for it. It didn't work. District court stops IRS from charging Peton fees. A Peton is a practitioner's tax identification number. The plaintiffs filed a class action lawsuit to challenge regulations requiring tax return preparers to obtain and pay fees for preparer tax identification numbers. The U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia held that the IRS was authorized to issue regulations regarding the exclusivity use of petents. However, the court found that the IRS may not charge fees for petents because they are not considered a service or a thing of value. Charging a patent fee would be the equivalent of imposing regulatory licensing scheme, which the IRS is not authorized to do. As a result of the court's decision, the IRS patent's registration and renewal system is currently suspended. The IRS is working with the Department of Justice to consider the next step and will update tax practitioners at its tax pros page. Yeah, that's going to take an act of Congress for them to be able to charge those fees. Yes. Uh, in one way, I'm glad that they stopped the P10 thing, although I agree that all, everybody should be registered that does a tax return. But the IRS was now entering a situation they're complaining about identity theft and people's identity being stolen through the accountants and all that. They were going to provide all the accountant information available online to anybody that wanted to look at it. Um, and that was going to take place at the end of this year, if I remember correctly. So for that reason, I'm glad they stopped this program because that, they were going to provide all these numbers 
these PTIN numbers to the public. Whereas opposed now, you look and somebody, yeah, they have a PTIN number. And if you want the PTIN number, it's on the tax return that we, we sign. But they were going to make it available on the Internet to anybody so any Russian hacker could steal it. Russian or other. <laughs> or other, yeah. yes. Um, here, in this case, um, a, there was a, uh, a retirement plan maintained by a church-affiliated employer. Um, and three church-affiliated nonprofits ran hospitals and other health care facilities where they had defined benefit pension plans for their employees. Current employer, former employees filed a class action claiming that the plans did not fall within ERISA's church plan exemption. And the district and appellate courts agreed. However, the Supreme Court concluding that a plan maintained by a principal purpose organization such as a church can qualify as a church plan regardless of which entity established the plan, and the Supreme Court reversed the decision. Um, so it was set up by the church, even though it was in a profit-making organization that was owned by the church, and the IRS allowed it because the churches owned the hospitals. And our last update, and this one I put in just for one reason, there's, um, I mean, we heard, especially in the last election, people talking about um, uh, large companies shopping for um, places where to be taxed overseas and looking for specific locations to move to to get taxed at cheaper rates. Um, there was an international pact launched to end this tax treating shopping that apparently is going to meet in Paris uh, or met in Paris back at the beginning of June, including 70 countries. Uh, and the reason that I brought this up uh, is this agreement is going to replace more than 1,100 tax treaties. Uh, the United States did not participate, is why I'm bringing this up. I mean, we heard a lot about it in the election from both sides, and they elected to not participate at all. So I'm just letting you know that that's where that stands. By the way, uh, Mike, can you give the telephone number in case anybody's interested in any of these topics of uh, where to go to on the web, and we'll provide you with a link. They can call uh, the number. Our our number, we're live, June 20th, 2017, 609-460-4673. And... If you don't get it, um, or you can actually, um, if you don't get it, you can email us at bizandtaxmatters at mjdavisspa.com. Keep in mind that these topics we do discuss, we, we just cover the surface. There's a lot more detail that's involved with specifics. Oh, right. yeah, you've got to read the cases yes. and, and get into detail. We're just skimming, skimming throwing information out there, um, proving that... Um, uh, you can't just give a tax answer. Well, because yeah, everything changes everything. The tax law is not logical. The only purpose of a tax law is to raise revenue, period. And obviously, the IRS always takes the position where they get more money than the taxpayers are willing to pay. Correct. Correct. And now we're going to talk about financing your business. Um, you know, I've. I, Dennis, you also, we both have small business clients that are always borrowing and need to borrow from different sources all the time and look always looking for different. Yes, absolutely, except my clients, some of them don't, don't understand the whole concept of it because they look at me and say, you mean I have to pay it back? Well, most clients don't understand the business financial aspect, so, right. but that's another topic. Um, and so that's why I decided that uh, I thought it would be a good idea to have a show on this topic um, with um, someone representing a banker, which is why I asked Mike Laskowski from Santander, and somebody from Alternative Financing Sources, which was why I asked Ken Morgan um, to join us also. Uh, 
So, guys, I think the first question that I have is, for a small business, how do you prepare to borrow? Um, as a small business, you really want to have your, uh, your, you know, your financial documents in order. So the first thing that we look at um, is tax returns. Uh, so you want to make sure your past year's tax returns are, you know, obviously filed with the IRS. Um, you want to make sure that uh, that information is accurate. Um, and then as a, as a, you know, a lender, we also look for inter- interim financials, so year-to-date financials as well. Um, you know, so we look at QuickBook printouts, and we want to see that, you know, the balance sheet that you have for year-to-date kind of coincides with uh, what you filed with the IRS to show consistency. Um, so that's always very important to, to keep proper financial records, you know, uh, proper uh, 90-day aging report. You know, we look at that for collateralization in lines of credit and things of that nature. Um, you know, keeping a strong inventory list. I have a lot of, uh, you know, clients that I've dealt with in the past, and I say, can you give me a 90-day account receivable report? Well, they can't do it. Like, oh, I, you know, here, let me just write it down on a piece of paper for you. And this is a, you know, $5 million business. Like I said, most small businesses don't understand the importance (laughs) of looking at their financials and understanding Mm -hmm. the information. So oftentimes, you know, I will reach out to their accountant or their financial bookkeeper and, you know, have them prepare some documents for me for inventory, for receivables, for balance sheets and things of that nature that'll help, you know, get get the loan through underwriting and get them approved. You know, otherwise I can't, you know, can't, can't get it approved without a, you know, the proper documentation. Mike, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Yep. You had said that uh, you would check their tax returns. Mm-hmm. Who do you check it with? Um, well, we always, um, you know, we have the customer provide a copy of the tax returns. Uh, we also have them file what's called a 4506T which I'm sure you gentlemen are familiar with, yep. and that's to verify the transcripts. So we'll always have a customer fill, fill that out so we can verify you know, their personal and also their business tax returns to make sure what they're reporting to us actually matches you know, what the IRS has filed. So Generally, that's at the end of the process. You know, you're, you're checking yeah. them before closing. But um, another thing that, that is really important that I, I think we need to highlight here is that the business needs to have a plan, a strategy. Um, you know, before you go into the bank, it, it's very important to, to, first of all, have your accounting in order. Your CPA, your accountant is integral in what you're doing. You should always be coordinating your efforts with your accountant to make sure that you have these systems in place. If you do not have the ability to generate uh, accounts receivable or inventory reports, if you have you know, receivables and inventory because there are a lot of businesses that don't have it. But the other thing is to also make sure that that you understand where you want to go. And the, the most important thing in my world, and uh, I'm an, an ex-banker, um, you know, I have an MBA, uh, I went to Temple, and I was trained at PNC as an underwriter. But the, the main thing is to sit down with the, the potential client and say, well, where do you want to go? Because if you don't know where point B is and you're at point A, it, it, you're, you're not going to get where you want to be. Agreed. So, th- there's another step that you didn't get to because I always tell my clients, you got point A and point B. What do you want to use the funds for, number one? And number two, how do you expect to repay it? That, that's correct. That's in the long-term strategy. And that's the other thing that I have found throughout my career is that your accountant and your attorney are your strategic partners. And that coupled with your banker or your um, consultant, which is what I really am uh, in in what I do, um, that's key. The key is to have a plan because if you don't know where you're going – Sometimes you will make mistakes and borrow the wrong facility um, or actually, you know, look at a, per, a, you know, turn down a potential purchase of a building when strategically in the long run it makes, it makes a lot of business sense. So you should really be looking 10 years into the future rather than a year in the future and instead of putting a Band-Aid on it, you should really do a long-term fix. Yeah, I, I agree with that. problem is most small business clients 
don't want to spend the money to use their accountants and their lawyers to get the information. Well, and another thing is that um, I don't charge anything up front, and I really enjoy the process. So from a business perspective, um, a banker is wonderful. And your program, and you should highlight uh, the programs that you have at your bank, because uh, Mike and I have had some discussions, and he has some wonderful programs there. But my goal is to get in on the outset, and I actually grow with my businesses. I have many relationships. I started in banking back in 86, and I have many relationships that, that really have stood the the test of time, and I've been through a lot of you know gyrations with my borrowers, but my goal is to keep them going and keep them going in the right direction. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Um, and I know uh, Mike and I have a client that we work on together, um, and uh, we work at trying to get the guy to uh, provide the information and get it together and keep his records ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Mike works with, with him very well doing that. Um, and we and we uh, we try that with all our clients. Um, we try to do that. Most the problem I have with most small business clients is they think we're there just to do taxes. Dennis, do you see it? Do you have a different experience with your small business clients? Uh, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's it's just that um, the expense for us is considered a non-revenue producing expenditure that they see no purpose. Of spending, and, and what I have found over the years, in particular when I look at my larger clients, they're the clients that use their financial information on an ongoing basis to run their business and plan their business and compare to what they did in prior years, and they're always analyzing the numbers. That's the big difference I see between the smaller clients and the guys that get bigger. Mike, what's your definition of a small business? My definition yes. is, is probably anybody under 75, 80 employees who's still a small business to me. Okay. Is there a dollar on volume you would place on the small business? I've had businesses as large as $30 million as clients. Yeah. I don't think that's, I a, small think that's business. a small business. That is, that is a, a small business. business. Yes. So a lot of these clients that only show $900,000 in revenue you're a small business, and you, you know, could go up to $30 million, you're still a small business. Correct. Correct. And I think, I think the government says $100 million is a small business. I forget yes. what their definition is, but yes. I think it's $100 million. Um, and, um, I mean, the clients that get to the $30 million are looking at their financial information on an ongoing basis and using their professionals to help them understand that information and to run a better business. When I'm usually, uh, you know, um, meeting with a prospective client and we're sitting down and we're talking, I pretty much know in the first 10 minutes, you know, how together the client is. And, you know, is this going to be, is this going to be an easy process or a difficult process? Because I've had situations where I'll walk and I'll sit down with a prospect and we'll discuss, you know, things that are going on, their plans for the future. I want to buy this building. Here are my tax returns. Here are my receivables. Here's my projections and things of that nature. Right. Um, other clients I sit down with, and I have to kind of lead them to that process and, and help them understand this is what you need to present. This is what you need to get together. Um, and a lot of times it's, it can be challenging getting all that information and, and compiling it, you know, writing up a credit memo and, you know, trying to present their story to, to the underwriter. Um, so because really when, when a loan application goes up to underwriting, they just look at the numbers. They don't look at the person or the business, you know, from, from a conceptual standpoint. So it's, it's basically the hard numbers is what they look at. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I definitely agree with you, gentlemen, that, you know. Yeah. And bankers only look at the numbers. Right. That's all they right. can look at. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing I think you have to consider is, and to all the people listening right now, is that no two businesses are the same. And no one really fits into the same, uh, you know, square peg, round hole kind of mm-hmm. uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have found that no two borrowers are the same, and everyone has unique problems. And... In this day, everyone has been through some kind of issue 
And uh, with that, I think we'll go to the break for the moment. And uh, we'll see you after the break. Thank you. Anderson with Delish Catering. And I'm Laura Mangone from Chamber Swap Cafe and Catering. And we'd like you to join us on Food for Thought Where. What do we talk about, Laura? We talk about restaurants. We talk about pet recipes, peeves, pet peeves, bitchy hostesses. <laughs> All sorts of food related items. All sorts of Tune food in. stuff. And sometimes not so much food stuff. We go off on segues, but we have a lot of fun, don't we? Absolutely. So join us on Food for Thought. PANJRadio.com, 1 o'clock weekdays. Hey there, folks. This is Danny Rongo. You are listening to PANJ Radio. Keep in mind, you can find all of my bass-related information and plays up on DannyRongo.com, including my new musical, The Phone Call. So make sure you tune in every Sunday night for Danny Coleman's Rock On Radio between 7 and 9 p.m. Do not forget, Rock On Radio. Again, Danny Rongo. Be cool. What if your mattress not only helped you sleep better at night, it also helped you heal better? Chiromatic of Princeton's mattresses are clinically proven to reduce back pain and stiffness and improve overall sleep quality. Now in our 40th year, our patented sports mattress line specifically targets muscle recovery as you sleep. Chiromatic of Princeton prides itself on great customer service too. We show our mattresses by appointment only. Contact us at 908-200-5549 for your personal tour at our Princeton Junction, New Jersey showroom. Use the coupon code RADIO and get $100 off at checkout. We always include free shipping and our 100-night better sleep money-back guarantee with every purchase. Chiromatic of Princeton Sleep Systems, doctor recommended, patient approved. The chiropractor's choice for a perfect night's sleep. So call us today at 908-200-5549 and use the coupon code RADIO. That's 908 200 5549 and use the coupon code radio for $100 off now. Welcome back to Tax Talk with Mike and Dennis. I am the co host, Dennis Markowitz, and I am an enrolled agent. Uh, Both Mike and I operate from Bucks County, PA. Our mission is to inform our listeners every other week as to the various aspects of running a business, the tax code, and answer any questions that they may have. Please call your questions to our call-in number, 609-460-4673, with any tax questions you may have. Also, uh, you can contact us on our webpage, and send an email to us to bizintaxmatters at mjdaviscpa.com. And today is Tuesday, June 20th. Uh, just to let you know, if you're listening to our live broadcast or one of the uh, podcasts at panjradio.com, uh, and it will also be replayed every day for the next week at 11 a.m. Uh, and now we're going to get back to our topic, biz, financing your business with our special guest, uh, Michael Liskowski from Sontander Bank in Warminster and Doylestown, and Ken Morgan from Urban Pool and Heath in Trevos, PA. Uh, Ken, before you um, before the break, you had mentioned that um, Santander has some programs that you found very interesting. Uh, Mike, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll talk about uh, two two um, really. Uh, uh, you know, awesome products that we have uh, for uh, lines of credit. I'll start with that. Um, right now, we'll do up to 15% of annual sales. 
um, on a line of credit. So a business with a, you know roughly a million dollars in sales, I can give them one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, and we can do up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars unsecured. Um, so the way that essentially works is anything over ten percent of annual sales. Um, you know, we will look for some collateral, that additional 5%. We'll look for, you know, whether it be uh, 90-day AR or some type of uh, inventory or additional collateral. Um, but we will do 15, you know, up to 15% of annual sales, um, and 150000 of that can be unsecured, meaning that we're not looking for any type of collateral whatsoever. You know, we will require personal guarantees of the owners, but still at the same time, it, it is an unsecured line of credit. Um, and then we also have uh, some really good uh, commercial real estate loans for owner-occupied. Uh, we really like owner-occupied. Uh, essentially for that, with that definition is, you know, more than 51% of the building is occupied by the operating business. Um, and we'll do a 25-year amortization on that. Um, a, lot of, a lot of commercial banks will only go up to 20. We'll do 25 years. Um, and the option of a five-year rate reset or a 10-year rate reset. We won't do, uh, you know, we won't, Reunderwrite the loan every five or ten years, like some other banks will do, and then you know stretch out the amortization. We'll just do a rate reset, and typically that's based off of the five-year Treasury note or the ten-year Treasury note, depending on if you do the five-year or the ten-year rate reset. Um, you know, all our loans are risk-based pricing, so I don't really want to get too much into the type of rates. But you know, if it's a well-qualified borrower, we do give very, very competitive rates, and we will match you know other banks. Um, and then also we do uh, term loans. We do equipment financing. Um, we will, uh, you know, finance new and used equipment. A lot of, lot of commercial banks, um, you know, especially at, at the small business level, don't typically do that. We do that. Um, and we will do uh, f- equipment financing for startups as well. I'm currently working with a company um, that is a uh, brew pub. And they, uh, they're buying, you know, they're uh, buying the equipment such as, you know, uh, the fermenters and the cooling systems and all that stuff. Um, so they just had to, you know, put 20% down, uh, and we were able to finance about $120,000 worth of equipment for them. Um, so they're going to be, they're going to be opening up, uh, shortly. So that was, that was a pretty cool, uh, venture. Um, and yeah, those, those are the type of products that we offer. Um, I also do, uh, you know, do cash management such as, uh, credit card processing, um, and, you know, your traditional, you know, online banking, online wire, uh, we do lockbox, a bunch of different other cash management products as well as our, you know, traditional business checking account. Um, but, yeah, and then going back to um, the, the lending products, we will do uh, SBA loans as well. Um, I don't want to get too much too much into that, but generally uh, the, those are counter offers. So typically what I do is I apply my clients for, you know, traditional financing, and then we will have underwriting come back and say, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we want to put this into an SBA bucket, and then we'll put the customer into an SBA program. And then in certain circumstances, you know, we either you know can't help the client at this time. We go back and, and revisit it, you know, six months, a year later, and we can get them approved. Um, if not, I often you know refer them to alternative uh, types of you know financing. Is- what are your uh, loan sizes? What's your uh- um, so the, the I'm a small business relationship manager, so I deal with companies, you know, typically from your small mom and pop all the way up to three to five million in revenue. Anything over five million, I would refer up to uh, a, a little bit of a higher level at my institution. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I do that and everything else. Now, Mike is a is a great resource. Uh, I view myself as a quarterback, so uh, a client would come to me and. I would actually evaluate their loan, and I do a pre-underwriting, kind of like what your underwriting department does. So what that helps to do is it really helps to shorten the time um, that it would take for that submission. Uh, When I trained for banking in 97, banking was a lot different than it is today. Uh, It's very difficult to bring all your stuff with you and to go into your banker's office and sit down with your your lender, relationship manager we were called back then, and actually plan what you need to do. Uh, It's a lot easier if someone like myself comes to a bank and has a complete package together and has everything laid out and debt service coverage and all the ratios and, and... understands the deal and knows that that bank has that in their arsenal of what they really what their forte is so my job 
is to help the client and figure out where to take their deal. Now, Urban Pool and Heath is a very small private firm. We represent a group of life companies, conduits, and credit tenant lease lenders, which are kind of off of the beaten path. Life insurance company lending is non-recourse. There's no personal guarantee. Um, And the conduit market is where they will take a commercial loan and they will put it into a pool and sell it on the CMBS market. Those kind of products are apartment complexes, commercial office buildings, um, industrial, and other large loans that really do not have a limit in size. Those are few and far between uh, because my background is as a banker. I was a senior lender at one time. So my clients tend to be small, middle market businesses, property owners. I can do uh, pretty much everything as far as financing. I have leasing resources. I do. Uh, I can do small businesses, large businesses, uh, investment, real estate, uh, owner-occupied, and Mike is part of my team of who I would take these deals to. So it, it's a, a much bigger uh, world for me, and I tend to really help a, a wider array of individuals. And uh, as Mike, uh, one of the things that is the worst thing that Mike can say to a client is, I can't help you. Because banks are really two-dimensional. They have their asset side, which, which is loans, but they also have their deposit side. And they want those deposits because those deposits create other opportunities. So by having me as a partner, Mike is able to actually offer more to his clients because a lot of the clients will come in today and they, they're banged up. Their credit is banged up. They, they might have had some issues, unbeknownst to them, where let's say that they were with a, a bank that is no longer out there. Maybe they were with a first union or you know a, a bank that is no longer with us anymore, and when that bank was acquired, their banker abruptly tells them, we no longer want to lend in your segment. That's a problem. And then they call their loan. That's another problem. So all along those cycles, there are people out there with credit that they may have judgments, they may have, you know, not through any fault of theirs, just that they were doing business. So I'm able to help them with something called a bridge loan. So my objective, as I said before, how do you get from point A to point B? Once you've identified what those points are, my job is to help get them there. And the best feeling in the world is to get someone through a closing for a bridge loan and then get them back to a bank. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Is there um, a difference in the rates and the fees between sure, sure there is. Um, depending on the loan type, you know, the life company loans typically they were two percent below what banks were. But right now, where rates are artificially held down, prime has started to creep up again. But the life companies really they're volatile and depending on treasuries and and on bonds and the like. But from the banking perspective, there are rates between the low fours to the mid fives right now, and. There are, but the difference is that some of the non-recourse loans that I have, there are fixed rates for 10 to 15 years. Um, banks tend to be on a five-year rate horizon because they have something called interest rate risk, which means that if they're going to, it used to be, um, that people would buy CDs and long-term investments, they would put their money aside. Well, what would happen is that if banks were paying uh, interest rate on those fixed investments, and all of a sudden, the, you know, their loan revenue was, was below what they had to pay out in interest, they could be upside down. So banks don't typically go over a five-year rate horizon. These other alternative sources, the conduits, the, you know, and the life companies, they're not bound by that because their funding is different. So we, I can offer 10 to 15-year fixed rates. Also, Mike offers SBA, and I have some SBA lenders that offer fixed-rate SBA. SBA tends to be tied, 
to the prime rate, two and three quarters over the prime is generally where it's at. Well, that could be a volatile rate for some borrowers. So depending on the project, we can offer them a fixed rate SBA. There's also something called an SBA 504, and I have a non-bank lender that is doing those where you can get a fixed rate on that product as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, obviously, you guys um, can work together on in certain instances because banks tend to be a little more conservative yeah, in who they're going to lend money to. It's true, but then you can typically get the some of the best rates through. That's right. Um, you know, through conventional you know business financing. Um, you know, uh, you know. Sometimes a lot of the SBA products can come with a lot of fees and, and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So if you're you're a business that um, you know, there's going to be a product out there for, for everybody. Um, you know, most commercial banks are a little bit more on the conservative side, so they're going to want, you know, better FICA scores. They're going to want, you know, stronger cash flow. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's not that we won't help, you know, the individuals that, you know, might, quote, unquote, be a little banged up. Obviously, we'll take a look at, you know, anyone and try to um, accommodate their credit request. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, if conservative lender you're going to get a pretty good rate um you know as long as as long as the financials look really really good mike i have a question mm-hmm. At mike. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh fica scores i would mm-hmm. like to know what uh, criteria you have for that and also uh what effect any liens specifically from a government agency has uh, for an application. Okay. okay. Every, every loan application is different. It's, it's like a snowflake, right? So there's, there's pluses and minuses, uh, you know, with the application and the strength of the credit. Um, FICA score, it, it, it all depends. You know, strong FICA score is going to help. Um, but if, you know, the FICA score can be 850, but the debt service coverage is below 1%, you know, that, that doesn't look really good. Um, you know, we could have a, a 650 FICA score, but the debt service coverage is really high. So that's going to that's gonna kind of balance out. So there's really no defined credit score that we look for. It's just the strength of the credit score is, is obviously going to help. Um, going to our, uh, you know, government, you know, liens or any type of lien, obviously that's a red flag. We want an explanation of that. And, um, you know, every, every situation is different. If it, if it makes sense, if it's something that you know, uh, makes sense for the circumstances, you know, we'll take a look at it. But obviously that's going to raise a red flag Um, that's going to, you know, require deeper questioning and, you know, a really good explanation to kind of get around that. Well, the other thing is that you're using a tri-merge probably, and I don't know if the the audience knows what a FICA score is, but a lot of times what the uh, lenders will try to get is something called a tri-merge, which is a transunion report. Mm-hmm. There's uh, and another two bureaus that go with that, and they merge them together. Um, as far as liens go, uh, tax liens are uh, a real problem because they will supersede any mortgages. So it's very important to get them resolved, and part of what I find is when I get a borrower that is having problems, we try to find a way to get them paid. Um, I always equate it to a hockey game uh, because it, you take a player that's in a penalty, they put them in a penalty box. Well, what we're doing is we're removing them from the game and we're cleaning them up. And at the end of the penalty, they come back in and they're fresh and they're ready to play again. Well, my goal was always to get them back to Mike. I want to get them back to a bank again. But a lot of times what has to happen is they have to come out of the market in order to get cleaned up and get everything straightened out. And we do cre- I have credit repair resources, so we will take them and we will repair their credit, get their FICO or uh, their TriMerge score up so that they can come back to banking again. Yeah. Some of these credit cards specifically discover have FICO scores on them. How much reliance do you place on those reports? I think they're pretty they're, – they're accurate, but mind you, I don't know what bureaus are pulling to get them. 
I, I you, you pulled directly from the bureaus. You wouldn't yeah. look right. at the we, credit we, cards. We go, we go right for uh, you know, Experian, TransUnion, Equifax, the three credit reporting That's agencies. Right. Mm-hmm. I always tell my customers, and I tell everyone, you know, friends, family, always monitor your credit, self-monitoring. I mean, they have you know, companies you know, such as LifeLock and, and all that that you have to pay for. I personally, I use uh, Credit Karma. Uh, which um, helps me keep track of my TransUnion and uh, Equifax, and I have the Experian app as well. So if anyone does an inquiry on my credit, I get an alert almost you know, within 24 hours. Um, you know, fortunately, whatever there's an inquiry pops up, it's because of something that I did, you know, buy, buying a car, you know, looking for a mortgage, things of that nature. Um, but I tell everyone, you know, go on there, see what's there, because there might be stuff that's, that's on there that, that, you know, a medical bill for 200 bucks. I've had a situation where um, a business customer came to me and he had three medical bills on there. Well, he didn't know because he, you know, he moved, the billing went to his old address, it never got forwarded. And now he has three, you know, um, charge-offs on his credit. I say go back to go back to the hospital, say it was a billing error, pay off that six hundred bucks, and it was able to, you know, basically increase their credit score about a hundred points just just based off of that. They had no clue that that was bringing down their credit report. So I, I tell everyone, you know, self credit monitoring is really the way to go. Well, it could also trigger, um, and we talk about this every week. Could also trigger a. a something that may be an identity theft issue too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's something to really uh, check I know um, one of my credit cards that I had um, one of my personal cards we got a call last week there was a a charge from some strange place for Mm -hmm. Mm $8.41 somebody was testing the card yeah okay bank Mm -hmm. call and Mm -hmm. we said that's not us stop the card yeah you really and, have to and be I like that. Yeah, like I've that. I've also seen situations people with common names. Not to pick on Michael Davis, but Michael Davis is a common, common name. name. Um, you know, a lot of times there there's stuff on there um, from a d- different Mike Davis. Somehow the one of the credit card companies transposed a number, and it happened to be a Mike Davis, and and now you have someone else's credit card on your credit report that's mm-hmm. delinquent. Well, that happens so, a lot mm-hmm. with title too, because if you have a common name. Whenever we pull title, when we're getting ready to do a closing, you know, John Smith, there could be a hundred of them, but those judgments will come up because they're just searching by name. Yeah, I mean, I get get calls probably every year. I probably get at least one of uh, a Michael Davis that hasn't paid his student (laughs) loans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and uh, might have been paid for, I won't say how many years. Uh, So... Uh, you know, it's it's something that can happen with a common mm-hmm. name. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so going should change you know, my name all, to something like Liskowski. You should. You should. <laughs> it's a very very common name over in Poland. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend any any business owner that you know. Going back to the original question, any business owner that's looking for credit, you want to make sure that you know you know use the resources that are out there that are free. I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, Credit Karma, experience, stuff like that. And, you know, get a handle on what your FICO score is because you know what you're, you know, you're looking for. One thing that business owners also don't realize is um, that when they're going for a loan application, if their wife's on the business or their spouse or, you know, their, their father might be a 25% owner in the business, but he's retired in Florida, a bank's going to want him to sign a personal guarantee, sign on the application. What does his credit look like? Yeah, anyone Even over twenty percent? Anyone over twenty percent? Traditionally, you know, we we look for as as you know, wanting to sign as a guarantor. So you want to make sure, you know, even your dad hasn't been part of the business and he's retired in Florida for the past twenty years. You know, his information could make or break a deal. That's good to know. Um, so, question. Um, for both of you, what are your current rates and fees? Okay, um, I guess I'll Just, go first. Like I like I said, I don't like to get into rate too much because everybody's range, yeah. everybody's everybody's different. But um, you know, we do risk based pricing uh, right now for our lines of credit. We're as low as Prime plus point five. Um, so that would be that would be a benchmark. We do sometimes have special promotions um, to to that go out, um, and those can sometimes be a little bit lower. I think we're actually going to come out um, in you know the third quarter, beginning in July. I think we're going to have a new line of credit promotion, um, <clears throat> and then as far as you know, fixed term loans. You know, I've seen as low as four point four nine, and I've seen as high as close to ten percent 
and it's all risk-based pricing. If it's a very, um, you know, risky loan, uh, you know, technically, you know, the, the underwriters determine, you know, what the rate rates are. And if, you know, that's what the customer is willing to take, then, then we'll give them that rate. Um, if it makes sense, you know, if it makes sense. Um, so, but, you know, rates are, it's all risk-based pricing. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we can go lower than that, you know, if, if we do a rate exception, if, if it makes sense to the bank and to the customer. So we want to find a happy medium right. where the customer's happy, you know, and the, and the bank's exposure isn't, you know, too much. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, as far as uh, my side goes, I just did, uh, late last year, I closed a 42-unit apartment complex, a couple of buildings in Philadelphia. That was 3.42% fixed for seven years, non-recourse. Hmm. That was a life company deal. Uh, a few months ago, I closed on a real estate refinance it was four and a quarter, and that was uh, five twenty-five. Um, so the the rates really run the gambit. Now, as far as the bridge loans go, they're a little more expensive. They tend to be in the ten to fourteen percent range. But remember, we're we're getting you out of a potentially damaging situation where you could have lost your property, um, your business was suffering, or whatever. So those are bridge loans, or interim loans, or interest only too. So there's no amortization on those, which means that it is you're able to absorb it. Sometimes the lenders will do something called a, a interest reserve, where they will take and put aside some money so that you don't have to pay it every month. But from it's all over the gambit as far as uh, where rates are. Accounts receivable financing is a little more expensive, but that's based on transactional. So those run. Per when you borrow, you pay a fee, then you're paying per month your interest, and then when you <coughs> repay that receivable, then that goes away, and then you go back and you're able to have availability again for more. So it's all, it really is dependent upon the situation, and uh, I try to make things very transparent and clear. Um, one thing that I I want to remind everyone of is that I do not charge any fees up front. Uh, I do not. Um, I, I'm, my fees are based on success. So depending on the type of loan, um, the banks generally will cooperate with me and reduce their fee. So net to the borrower ends up being maybe it's a half a point more than they would normally pay, but I'm acting as your consultant from the get-go. Uh, bridge loans are a little more expensive than that. Uh, the life company loans and conduit loans, they're at something called PAR, which means that there is no lender fee. The borrower will pay an upfront good faith deposit because they lock the rates in, but then you get that back at closing, so then our fee is maybe 1%. Um, uh, Mike, do you have any upfront fees? Um, generally, we, we don't have any upfront fees, no application fees. Uh, our lines of credit traditionally uh, you know, are $250 annual fee. You know, you know, for for any any amount, um, you know, certain term loans have uh, closing fees. You know, def- definitely no more than than two or three hundred bucks. Um, so, really, as as far as you know, sitting down and, and reviewing the financials and seeing what we can do to help, there's there's no fee upfront for any applications or any underwriting, anything like that. Um, the only time the customer would pay is you know, you know, after you know, closing, in that type of situation. Uh, thank you. So I guess in summing it up, uh, business owners need to be aware of their financial information as they go to make sure that when they need to borrow money, that they're financially able to do it, that their um, uh, ratios are in line. Uh, they have positive equity is always a positive, a good thing, but not always there for various reasons. Uh, and summarize um, what they can, at least as far as their business plan, and keep that in writing and updating on, on ongoing. As I've said before, um, my most successful clients do that on an ongoing basis. Um, I've got one that I'm in the middle of working on. They're working on uh, their, um, their five-year plan now for the next five years, mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of doing that. And that's what they should be doing. Um, and uh, it was a, about... Three months, no, about nine months ago, he came to me and said uh, that the bank that they were dealing with was going to pull their line, 
and at the end of the next year because his current ratio wasn't where it needed to be and his equity was negative. And we sat down and discussed his balance sheet and how to get it back in line. And he did that in six months. Hmm. And the bank then doubled all his financing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for small business owners, the advice is to just keep looking at your numbers ongoing so that when you need the money, you can go borrow it. And with that, uh, that's the end of our show, and we will be back. Uh, we won't be back till July 18th because of the July 4th holiday, and we'll be talking about networking your business. Thank you. <laughs>